You are listening to You, Me, and an Album, episode 123. I'm Al Melvin. Once we'd finished it, and then it didn't really spark CBS, um, I mean, Murray actually started to write a very different way after this album because it was, in a way, a failure. But I took a lot, as I said, of the ideas and used it on other things I was recording on. But I also made copies of the album and gave it to anyone that I was working with, you know, just to spread the word of this album. So I, I probably spent five years after the album still promoting it. That was Phil Brown talking about Murray Head's 1973 album, Nigel Lived. Phil is an audio engineer whose resume reads like a history of rock and popular music from the late 60s on forward. Phil has worked on recordings by the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Traffic, Led Zeppelin, Bob Marley, Talk Talk, Throwing Muses, and Dido, just to name just a, a few of the artists that he has worked with. Phil's also the author of Are We Still Rolling, which chronicles his work with these and many, many other artists. Phil, it is really an honor to have you here on the show, and I appreciate you taking time out to talk about a favorite album of yours. So welcome to You, Me, and an Album. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. I uh, appreciate you being here. And um, the very last episode that I did and published, uh, I called Mind Blown. Uh, It was a compilation of some previous interviews I did where the guest had some sort of analysis that blew my mind. So I'm, I'm mentioning that now as a segue to your book, because every chapter of your book blew my mind. <laughs> All the backstories of these classic albums. Uh, it's very cool that you, uh, you uh, put that out for us to, 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 to share with us. Uh, so how long did you have the idea of um, writing and publishing that book? Oh, I think um, I probably had the idea of doing it for about, probably five years or so before I actually did do it. Um, and it takes longer to write a book than you think it does. <laughs> but, you know, I spent probably three or four years actually getting the inf- some of the information uh, back and, and being accurate about what I was talking about. Um, and then when it was finished, um, it probably took another kind of four years to, to get it released. Um, with the publishers. So it was, it was a fairly long experience, but great fun. I would hope so. Cause yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real tome. Again, there's so many albums uh, covered over uh, what, four decades, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously a, a time consuming process. So to get through that, uh, I know there, there had to be a payoff for you to. Well, I, I mean, I, and I wanted to do it really because, um, you know, once characters like Chris Kimsey and myself and, you know, Tony Platt, that those kind of engineers that were around in the from the sixties onwards, uh, it was a very different way of working, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to just get some of that down because you know once we've gone, it it all becomes kind of myth and legend, some of that stuff, um, and I thought it was important to try and capture that that way of working with very little um, technical gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the neat things about the book too is that because it covers such a long time span that we get to see the the changes uh, in terms of how your work was impacted, the changes of of uh, the process of making making albums. Uh, and part of the book is the album we're going to discuss. Uh, so Nigel lived by Murray Head, and um, so in the exchange that you and I had over email setting this up, you had asked. You just want to confirm that you, in fact, chose the album instead of me. And, you know, whatever you picked would have been great, whether it had been an album you worked on or or not. Um, 
But when I was reading your book, and I just re- started reading it probably a few months, maybe several weeks back, and that Murray Head chapter was one that really uh, stood out to me. So I thought, in fact, when I read it, I thought this would make a great episode. <laughs> so when you picked it, I was ecstatic. Um, so I'm really uh, looking forward to digging into some of the things that maybe didn't didn't get into the book or uh, you know things, uh, at least expanding on things that, that did get into the book. So let's... Let's go ahead and, and dig right in. So because you wrote about it in your book, I I know how you became acquainted with this album. It's a question I usually start each podcast off. You know, where did you first hear this album? You first heard the album when it was being made. So um, at what point in that process did you realize that this is a really special album? I think, um, I mean, pretty early on, we it probably took us a few months because we were working at Olympic and Ireland and doing a lot of the location recording. And it was the location recording that really uh, inspired me and kind of got to me. Um, it's the first time I'd ever really done that kind of thing of, of taking a, a Naga or recording gear and going out and recording people on railway stations or in pubs or getting sound effects, if you like. Um, and Murray was this incredible energy. You know, he just... Um, he was, he'd done Jesus Christ Superstar. Every time I look at you, I don't understand Why you let the things you did get so out of hand You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned Why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? Then he'd been in a film called Sunday Bloody Sunday with Glenda Jackson. And then he made this album and um, he had this incredible energy. And... He was a bit of kind of London royalty, if you know what I mean, from just because of his uh, music and his films and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it was pretty early on, just this live recording that really inspired me. Uh, so uh, uh, just a very early impression that I had listened to the album because my familiarity with Murray Head is Jesus Christ Superstar and One Night in Bangkok. That was it. Right, uh, right. So this is my first introduction to to his solo albums and and i'm got jesus christ superstar top of mind because there was a, an episode on that with my wife mary beth uh episode 92 for those who haven't listened to it and uh, i kept hearing judas on this album he's got a very kind of tortured way of vocalizing sometimes that uh, it felt like this character um of nigel was it was actually Judas. So I don't know if that was something that uh, impressed you uh, when, when you first heard him recording. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. I mean, um, the album's kind of split into two halves. So side one is kind of success, side two is failure. Um, and I think on 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 side one, I think it, it's a very, it is a very positive kind of up sounding Murray head. By the time you get into side two, I think you do get um, uh, a completely different kind of character that comes across. He was a great singer. I mean, he still is a great singer, but... 
somewhat underrated in a way. He, he was a bit like a Steve Winwood sounding guy, you know. He had that kind of range. So there's so much to to pry into with this album that I hardly know where, where to start because it's it's just a, a sonically gorgeous album. Uh, but then there's the story, as you alluded to. It's a it's a concept album. There's the two sides, like you say, success and failure. So there's a real narrative arc to it. Um, but well, let's start with the the audio uh, aspect of it, because like you said, it was one of the first opportunities you had to record uh, things in a mobile unit. Um, is is it a special album to you just because of the mere fact that you did some things that maybe were were you know very novel at the time, or was it really like if you look back and you say this was kind of a new technology, but but we really kind of nailed it. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it was quite a profound album to make. I mean, I was quite young. I was only 21, 22. Um, Murray was this ball of energy, as I said, and we started to work um, in, in a much looser way, I suppose, to a lot of, you know, I was a house engineer at Ireland. So you were, you know, different artists would come in, you'd make a single or a record or whatever, um, with Murray, it was much more of a, a serious project, which he he kind of wanted to get that over to everyone. And he had fantastic bunch of musicians, I mean, Cozy Powell and all kinds of kind of happening characters at the time. Um, and I think it was just going back to Olympic because I trained there in the 60s to record and then record in Ireland, recording with the Pi Mobile. Um, it was just fantastically exciting. Uh, but it also completely changed my opinion, I think, to making records at that point in time. I, I took a lot of the ideas on to other projects, you know. Um, I got heavily into recording outside. So with Robert Palmer, years later, I would record vocals outdoors. And uh, with John Martin, when we recorded an album across a lake in in uh, near Reading, Chris Blattle's house, um, a lot of these ideas were sparked by Murray in 1972. Okay, so he approached you and said, you know, for example, with um, Dole, let's say, which was recorded in a, in a subway uh, subway station. So he approached you with that idea, like, I, I really would like to hear this in a, in a subway tunnel, or was it more of kind of a, you know, negotiated thing that, that came out of, of yeah, back I and forth? With- yeah, yeah. I think once I got, you know, got working with him, got to know him, hanging out at his flat in, in Fulham with his model uh, girlfriend at the time, Sue Jones, Sue Ellis Jones. Um, and so we started to discuss the kind of story of Nigel and Murray explained a lot of what he was trying to get, what he was after. Um, but some of it just kind of grew for, from that, really. I mean, we did want to get um, a choir and a pipe organ, which is why we took out the mobile originally. Um, oh. So we took the pipe mobile to Covent Garden, and there's a little church at the back of the old market called St Paul's, not the big cathedral, but a church. And they had a beautiful pipe organ. So we we really rented the pipe mobile to do that, to record this ten, eight, eight guys, I think, in a choir, plus the, the, the organ. It just kind of went from there. It was we had this track, Dole, um, 
Murray, I think it was decided that evening, uh, once we'd finished at Covent Garden, that why don't we try and get, I think his name is Chris Mercer, the sax player, why don't we try and get him to meet us and see if we can record this track we had an idea for doing in a subway, you know. And, I mean, back then, I think everything was so much freer and easier in London that you could turn up, you know, with a mobile at Tottenham Court, Tottenham Court Square and... and um, kind of lay mics in a subway and record at two or three in the morning. Um, it would be very difficult to do that today with police and security and, and everything else. But uh, some of these ideas, <clears throat> some of them Murray had, others developed as we went along. Uh, definitely the subway is something that happened quite last minute, but was perfect. Yeah, there's a really interesting description of that in the book. And I, I got a mental image and I want to make sure it's, it's accurate where you had the mobile unit and you needed somewhere to plug it in. And yeah. so there was an Italian restaurant. And so there was, was this just a very long cord that ran? Yeah. From, yeah. From the I van mean, the, into the, the restaurant? Well, the, the um, we, yeah, we parked the mobile. I mean, in those days, uh, all this gear ran off literally a 13 amp plug, you know, it wasn't anything bigger than that. So I remember we went to parked outside this uh, Italian restaurant, had went in and had a meal and um murray basically i met chris mercer he turned up there and murray basically talked to the guy that owned it and said hey any chance of us plugging this in for an hour or so while we record you know and the guy was totally up for it um the fact that he pulled the plug about three or four hours later because it was kind of three or four in the morning and he wanted to go <laughs> home so i don't blame him. um but it was all yeah it was all fairly last minute and it was that that kind of gear like the thing I'm sitting in front of, it's a, a Helios desk that ran off 24 volt, you know. So we weren't um, working with gear that took a lot of uh, power. Okay. And we literally uh, took our 13 amp plug to fire up the mobile and then ran the cables into the um, subway for, for as long as our cables would, would take us, really. So you had to find a location with a plug and then, you know, but also that was where you could park the unit and be near yeah. the subway. Yeah. I mean, that's just, I know. Back just then, incredible. I say, <laughs> it seems crazy now, but um, it was easier to do back then in, in 72, you know, I think it was a bit looser in London um, and we didn't get moved on, you know, the police didn't hassle any of that kind of stuff. Um, so we, you know, we were allowed really the freedom of being able to do it. Um, and it was quite a unique kind of sound because of the sacks traveling down this huge great subway under underneath Tottenham Court Road and you could hear because it got quiet at night but then you can actually hear um, the takes we were doing at four in the morning you can start to hear a bit of people walking through the tunnel um, the odd early morning person going to work I guess or late night people coming home um, so you could get the, the feeling of, of people actually in the tunnel. Yeah, so, you know, I had read that chapter of the book several weeks ago, and then we set this up. I listened to the album several times and then I went back and read it. And that was a really neat sequence to do those things because I read your account of how that song was recorded. And then I go back. It's like, 
oh, I just thought those were sound effects. But I mean, that that was, you could hear the trains, you could hear the people yeah. milling about. Um, and that was just all what was naturally occurring. Yeah. Every sound effect across the album is all, you know, we've gone out and specifically recorded, you know, on the train stations and with the the local um station master who started chatting to us and all of that's just genuine stuff you know none of it's uh, bbc uh, sound effects you know we, we everything on there we recorded one way or another yeah well and um yeah i had a question too about because you mentioned the the train conductor um and there's some you know some dialogue in there uh, on the first track uh, and it I mean, it sounds scripted because it's so perfect to the yeah. song, but is that just actually just what you happened to capture? Yeah. No, I mean, I was there. We we obviously, w- when you're working that way, you record a lot more than, than or if you're lucky, you record a lot more than you actually kind of need. But then we would go back to the studio and unload the quarter-inch tape and kind of pick out the best bits that we liked that made sense to the story, edit, maybe edit them together. But the the guy who comes and says, "Oh, you know," he starts talking about steam. You know, I mean, yes. we're we're not in an era of steam by then. We were kind of diesel trains. We said, "Oh, steam!" Yeah. And he was just one of those kind of station master fanatics who'd been there probably all his life, um, and just got totally into telling us, uh, you know, as much information as he could <laughs> as we're there without hidden microphones. So it was it was a lot of fun. That that's incredible, and then another uh, track too, where you you picked up some conversation on mics was uh, the party, and mm-hmm. so that was in a pub, as I uh, recall. Yeah, um, we we the Narg is it's quite heavy, but it's quite a small machine. These little portable kind of film machines, I guess, your audio, but you know, very heavily synced for film, and. Um, I had it strapped to my back and then a coat on the top and then mics down my sleeve. So we could walk into a pub and wherever I pointed my hands pretty much is what we were recording. And we hit the kind of King's Road pubs and things, you know, uh, to get that kind, those kind of people who are all talking about, oh, when did you come over? What You know, they're all just uh, like on another class level. Um, But you know that was done with with hidden mics and then we would edit the best bits one of the things you know serendipity but one of the things when we were we'd edit the best bits out and then we'd have a track that it was you know it, it was four mm-hmm. and sometimes we would literally kind of start our track and then spin in the sound effects and it was incredible how many times the sound effects were like perfect in length but also kind of where there were gaps and changes or emphasis all fitted musically as well i mean if you can remember the first track at the end of it when the train comes in and they're all shutting the doors yes that almost ends up being in time with the track that's going on. And it was just a complete kind of, you know, fluke. 
but it's amazing how that all just fits so perfectly with the kind of dying acoustic guitar I think it is at the, at the time. So a lot of um, a lot of what we got, you know, did seem magically to to be the right length once we'd edited things together. Yeah, that's why if I hadn't read the book, I would just would have assumed that these were all very uh, you know controlled recordings, uh, yeah. you know, where yeah. you intentionally uh, got these got these sounds. So it's it's amazing that how that all fit together. Yeah, no, it was incredibly random in, in many ways. <laughs> Uh, so, well, another track too, I, I was curious about where, um, you used the, the mobile was, um, pity the poor consumer. And as I read in the book, you, you went to a church. Now this is a different organ than the pipe organ you were talking about. No, this, before. this is the one, this is the, the oh, pipe okay. organ at, at, uh, at St. Paul's in Common Garden. That's, that's, um, that's why we, we wanted to go there to get the pipe organ for pity the poor consumer and also to get the choir for religion. Gotcha. So that, gotcha. Okay. That two things that we were trying to get the 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 dole and the subway was a, a bonus in a way. Okay. Uh, so was that always the plan to have a church organ on Pity the Poor Consumer, or was that uh, uh, again? It's, it, yeah. it's something that we had a at Island at the back of the room I'm sitting in because that this is Island One, so this is kind of what it used to look like. But at the back where the screen is, um, originally when the studio first opened in kind of 70 um there was a small pipe organ that had been left from when it was a church and you know we'd used it on various um projects over the couple of years that i'd been there but um and murray wanted to use it and when he used it he just thought it sounded too polite i think might have been his mm. comments you know it was it just sounded too small and he said it'd be great to get a pipe organ, but it needs to be in a church and, and all the sound you get from being in a church. So um, it was something, again, that, that kind of developed and got talked about um, because the original pipe organ that was there wasn't sufficient. And uh, was he pleased with that that result? Uh, oh yeah, I mean very much. And um, you don't hear it. <clears throat> the album got remastered a few years back by Innovation Records in New York, and they did a beautiful job. But we we had this thing called print through, which is when um, the tape comes around. If you're recording at very high level, it often prints through the backing a kind of a, an echo of what's just before it. So when the um, the six or the eight guys were singing religion, when they finished, there was this print through, which on the vinyl originally, you could hear this kind of faint repeat after the track that led into junk. But then when it came to being made into a CD, that disappeared. And I did notice that the new 
remastering, it's disappeared on that as well. But it was on the very first original, and it's just this print food from high-level high recording. But it was a great effect, is, was my point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, there, we've already talked about some of the, you know, the choices that were made for various tracks. Um, but kind of putting just the the technical part of, of yeah. it aside that you worked on, when you listen to the album, are there particular tracks that you're especially proud of just because of, of how they sound? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, 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 you know, you've got to remember this is back in the days of 16 tracks. So, I mean, although we don't want to just constantly talk about technology, but I mean, it was basic and what we were trying to do was quite involved with just 16 tracks of, of, of information. But I think um, apart from pa uh, Pace at the Station, which I've always liked, um, I like uh, Bed and Breakfast a lot. I like Ruthie. I think Ruthie is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's quite sparse and it's quite simple with these wonderful strings. That's one of my favourite kind of tracks on side one. Um, on side two, I love Pity the Pork Consumer. I always wanted to remix it and get the vocal louder. It always bugged me. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you. No, because it was very hard for me to pick out the vocals. And yeah. The glad touches um, me. No, it was, it's, it was, I mean, we, you know, we were manly mixing and, and we were trying to get the power or keep the power of the organ and the size of that. Um, and the voice is fighting slightly more than it should be in like, you know, but I mean, it is 50 years ago now. So, um, but I like, uh, so Dole is a bit of a favourite. Um, Religion also is one of my favourite tracks, just with the the whole weird combination of steel pans and and um, wires. So yeah, what was the the process behind that choice with the steel drums? I think um, you know if if you go back to that kind of era. Um, we had very few effects or effects or, uh, pedals or any kind of gadgets really like you do today. So um, tonal qualities, it was kind of important. Well, you had to basically use the, you know, the instrument to create some kind of sonic area. And if you listen to the album, I mean, it is very, some of it's quite sparse, but, you know, it's, it's a wonderful bunch. It's like five guys, basically, you know, it's bass drums. There's always an acoustic bit of keyboard, you know, but it's a it's it's a fairly simple album um, structurally. Um, but I think when it came to religion, we wanted things to be slightly. We wanted something that was different, and you know, Steel Pans. I was a big fan of. His, I did a lot of reggae stuff in the early seventies, um, and I love that whole kind of Jamaica thing. Love Steel Pans. And we just kind of thought it was a good kind of counter sound to the rest of, of, of the album and the track, you know, that it had this different kind of feel for this one section.
Yeah, because that was something I definitely wanted to ask you about because it sounds really cool. And like you say, it's such a contrast to everything else on the album. And so I did what I do, which is I tried to, you know, rationalize and, and figure out, you know, oh, is there some sort of message <laughs> in this choice? Uh, but, you know, basically we're just going for contrast and, and an effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any kind of hidden messages in it. I mean, the actual um, album cover came with a whole diary, um, that we, you know, which was Nigel's diary. So there's a whole background story for those that really got into it and, and read the whole story, um, which is covered by the songs. You know, it is a, a, this thing of a guy leaving a small town, going to London to make his fame and fortune. You know, that's kind of the gist of, the, of, of side one. And side two is, you know, where things don't always go to plan, um, the hassles of, of trying to live in a city, drugs, religion, you know, uh, and then the kind of decline. So it, it, it was never a, a fantastically kind of popular subject. Um, and Murray, in fact, when we were making the album, he did say something like at the time, we're either five years too late or four years too early, you know, because if it had come out in the late 60s, maybe 68 with all the other concept albums and, you know, it's, you, could, uh, you know, Small Faces, Ogden's Not Gone Flake or the uh, Moody Blues, you know, people were more used to these kind of concept albums. When we brought this out, um, it wasn't really a, a, a big popular thing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think Murray might have been right in the sense that the timing of it was not good because it, it, it kind of disappeared. It's become successful in much later days, you know, the, the album was a failure at the time. Well, and you may have played uh, a, a role in that because when I streamed the album on YouTube and I'd look at the comments and, uh, you know, some people said I came here because of Phil Brown's book. So, uh. <laughs> And it is an album that I must admit I promoted for years in the 70s when, you know, once, I'd, once we'd finished it and then it didn't really spark CBS. Um I mean, Murray actually started to write a very different way after this album because it mm -hmm. was, in a way, a failure. But I took a lot, as I said, of, of the ideas and used it on other things I was recording on. But I also made copies of the album and gave it to anyone that I was working with, you know, just to spread the word of this album. So I I'd probably spent five years after the album still promoting it. And then I was important in getting it remastered about five or six years ago on it um in uh, what's it called uh in intervention mm, um, okay because they did a, a fantastic uh i don't know if you can get in a picture of it maybe okay not. yeah for now it's, it's an audio version so you can uh people yeah, yeah. can oh, yeah, seek cool. out the album and, and uh yeah. yeah see the the cover which is yeah, it's an interesting cover and i wish i had had access to the liner notes listening to it because um the story's not really linear uh so it took me a while to kind of get the get the hang of where the story was going because uh, like you made a reference to the fact that uh, the liner notes are sort of written up like a, a diary yeah yeah and, very uh, much yeah. so it kind of dips in and out of these these different episodes and it's because like when you flip and you go from the side one success to side two failure 
And there's not really, you know, an explanation of how did we get from, you know, when you wake up in the morning, which is this kind of blissful song, yeah. uh, <laughs> till you get the biggest side too, where, uh, you know, he's screaming, I think we're going blind and yeah. uh, he sounds very <laughs> agonized. Uh, <laughs> well, the diary <laughs> how did we died. get from yeah. here to there? The diary helps because it's it's it is I mean it's, it covers many pages but it is like somebody's diary so you see all the kind of sl- the madness slowly take shape across the last few pages which kind of cover junk but if you read all that you can then see um, about the positive thing of leaving on the station you know going to parties in London the whole kind of rock and roll thing it all becomes more apparent once you've read this kind of diary. I mean, it was a very ambitious project, you know. Very ambitious. And he, he absolutely pulls it off. I mean, I, I, I'm, like I said, I'm glad you picked this album because I was curious about it when you wrote about it, but I, I hadn't gotten around on my own to listening to it. But then once I did, and especially once I put the headphones on and I could hear mm-hmm. all the things that you alluded to with the, the, the noises from the train station and the pub and, and all that, um, it's yeah it's not like many if any recordings from that period that i no, i can think i of. would agree yeah i mean it sounds that you know it's very it's very clear and um you know i, I think even the you know especially something like maybe the bass sound uh rather than it being this big heavy fat kind of bass it's actually in a very um clear and on its own kind of space, you know, so you, you hear all these instruments very clearly. Um, it doesn't feel, yeah, it doesn't feel like a kind of rock record, if you know what I mean by that. Um, it, the, 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 the instrumentation and the, the balance of it is, is quite different to kind of what was going on at the time. Yeah, it is. It's very clean. Um, it's very impressive how yeah everything's kind of got its own lane, mm. um, and there's certain tracks where that just really pops like Dole, uh, and it's really neat how the vocals are all in one channel. And everything else except the sax is in the other channel and the sax starts to bleed over. Uh, really, really cool. Um, so just stuff like that. It's it's really impressive. Like I said, sonically, it's impressive. And then it was ambitious in terms of a story to tell. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book how Murray uh, had very certain political views. Was he trying to get across a bigger message with this album than just somebody's fictional diary? Yeah, probably. I mean, no, Murray. He's he's always been a bit of a, a an activist. Um, has very clear and um, you know willing to to explain at length his his views on certain things. So I think there probably was a, a you know a, a wider picture, um, summing up the kind you know really that end of the sixties into the seventies that kind of era. Um, I think he was very heavily involved with because of the Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, his success at the late 60s 
Um, and then going into the 70s, I think uh, I, I think it is on another level besides just being a kind of really interesting album. Um, and he's still been, I mean, he's always been quite kind of political. You know, uh, some of his songs, although, you know, things that, that Last World, Last Days of Empire or, you know, Say, Say It Ain't Sojo, which was his, which was a huge hit in France um in the 70s before the chess project um he had this huge hit in about 74 75 um with say it ain't sojo which was uh very much a you know this political um song really the image and the info may be falling apart the money has gotten scarce one man's word held the country together but the truth is getting yeah, well, yeah, I suspect, um, but I think it's the kind of album where you could you can read a lot of different things into it in terms of the the story and the and the message. Uh, well, before we move on, because uh, I, I want to talk about some things you've done more more recently. Um, again, you, you've of all the albums you, you've worked on, so many different albums, much less the albums you haven't worked on that you possibly could have picked. Uh, I know it's a special album to you, but. If you could just convey to somebody who hasn't listened to the album yet why it's why it's important, why it's an important album for them to listen to, what would you tell them? Well, he's got a beautiful voice. There's some fantastic songs. And it kind of captures, you know, in a period in time, I think, very much that that kind of early 70s with the limited technology, but great musicians. Um, I think it's a kind of, I mean, all right, so you don't have to listen to junk each time, if you know what I mean? It, that is a pretty heavy track to deal with. But as an album, I think it's really beautiful and, and very positive for, for, for the majority of it. Yeah, uh, well, I, I will admit to leaving junk off of my listening yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a couple of rounds. It's, it's rough. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very disturbing, which is intentionally supposed to be. But you know what it's like um, when you have those kind of things on an album and you're going to hear it every time. You know, sometimes um, it, it's good to finish at the end of religion and not go into the whole heroin junk track. And I mean, it's obviously an important part of the album. Um, I mean, if somebody wants to get the full experience, I think they have yeah. to have to listen to it at least once uh, to because you don't get the full sense of despair when you cut no, it what, off. What I, what I did love about the, the the end of Junk when it's just Murray and an acoustic guitar, his voice is really just broken. You know, this guy's a broken man, and he's just there with his acoustic guitar vocals singing the opening, you know, of the album. And I just thought that was a great way of, of finishing up. Exploring fresh horizon instead of looking down. A best to get at what you can. It doesn't matter what you find. Uh, you know, ending junk where you're, you know, well, I was a patient at the station, you know, it's just like, uh, a full circle. It was really good. That no, that was incredible. Uh, because on on so many different levels, 
Uh, first of all, there's that line in Pacing on the Station about have I paved the path to hell? So you've got that <laughs> foreshadowing right at the, yeah. at the get-go. And then you've got the 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 train journey out of the small town into the city, which sets up this whole story. But then at the end, I have to assume that the the train he's getting on is it's the end of life. Yeah. Very so much. it's it's a yeah. it's a different, you know, it's it's the ultimate departure. So um Yeah. Yeah, very, very heavy, heavy stuff, um, and absolutely essential. And yet, yeah, I I, I couldn't listen to it every time. No, no. Um, I'll just well, I say one other thing too. What what makes it for me so effective is that the way at the beginning, it's not so difficult for the first minute or so, and then very gradually the music itself disintegrates. It's very subtle. When you had nothing, I had all. You took what I had freely. Does it need your help? So uh, and it, it's uh, a fitting way to end the album in a lot of ways because there there are all these subtleties throughout the album and things done so tastefully. And even this thing that's just heart-wrenching and, and difficult to listen to was done in such a, a painstaking way that I, mm-hmm. I really appreciated. Yeah. I mean, there was one crazy thing we did on, on the party, which was we recorded the, the track twice, you know, with a bunch of, of guys, but recorded the song twice. And mix both versions and then put one on the left and one on the right and started them at the same time, you know, which you know, split second differences or whatever. Mm-hmm. And these two tracks, because tape machines always drift, but they stay in time initially and then they get kind of completely out of time in the party thing, which is madness, and then they kind of come back in time. This is a magic And I mean, that was, again, it's like, it's one of the craziest things I mean, I've ever done, really, of having two tracks of the same thing. Nothing sings, and you just start them and see what happens. But that was a, a very much another of Murray's things. Hey, let's get this down twice. It's, you know, we need to create the feeling of being in a mad party in a house, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I hadn't picked that out, but now that you're describing yeah, it, check it I, out. Can, I can hear it in my head. Uh Amazing. Amazing. Uh, well, Phil, I'm so glad. <laughs> like I said, I was ecstatic that you picked the album. I was definitely rewarded by giving it a bunch of listens and really, uh, and then going back to your account of it in the book and like, oh, okay, that's that's what's going on. There. Really, really cool. So I, I definitely encourage people to both read the book and to, to listen to this Murray Head album. Hey. Fantastic stuff. And I, I want to um, just bring things much farther forward uh, because I recently had a guest on here, David Joseph from Hell by Trees. And so there's a couple of connections there because you've worked on his records, but then he also came on here to talk about the Mark Hollis album, which right. you also worked right. on and you yeah. write about that in the book. And it's an interesting story that David told part of, but um, the whole thing where you weren't going to work on the album, but then you you did wind up working on the album. Uh, so really, you know, really neat story there. But um, how did you get involved with uh, with Hell by um, Dave literally just got in touch. He tracked me down, sent me an email, I think, just saying, um, I've got this project I'm doing. I'd really love you to, to mix it and get involved, you know. Um, and although I 
you know, you know, it's tricky. To, when do you stop work? But I mean, I officially kind of stopped in 2019 from from doing, you know, f- after 50 odd years uh, of doing kind of albums for Universal Music or you know the whole music biz thing. I kind of stepped away from that. Um, but I am still doing things, but they tend to be with artists directly and and just things I really like. So I just said to him, "Well, send me some, you know, some rough." rough mixes and I immediately just love the material and also um half the band he'd used I know from from either talk to or just you know Tim Rennick from sessions I did way back in the 70s and 80s he was in Murray Head's band um and then Robbie McIntosh from the talk talk stuff you know so I love the tracks and uh and got involved and mixed it and then just a few couple of months ago three months ago we mixed these kind of tiddle EP type CDs plus a new vinyl. Vinyl sounds fantastic. Uh, I just love his stuff, you know. So I, um, uh, he's a really kind of cool guy. He gets, it's amazing how some people can, whether it's perseverance or, or love or whatever it is, who get through and manage to meet all the kind of people that they kind of want to meet you know so he recently was hanging out with mark's son you know which i thought was really cool it's like wow because i remember mark's son from when he was about you know nine ten years old not when he was 28 or something or 30. um but dave's the kind of guy it seems that you know it's like well i'd be really interested to talk to that guy and and manages to get through to these people but uh that yeah he just phoned me up and um i loved it and said yes you know well, fantastic. And yeah, so there's, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we talked about this when I had him on the show, because it was only, I think, about two months ago, but uh, he's got the double EPs uh, that yeah. are still about to come out. So we're closer to that release date uh, uh, as we record here. And as you you hear this episode, if you're hearing it uh, uh, shortly after it's it's released. Uh, and just one other connection to Tim Freeze Green. This is now going back, I think, maybe a year, year and a half ago. He was on the show, um, nice. did not talk about anything related to Talk Talk. No, he won't. No. And I was going to say, he was actually quite clear <laughs> that he didn't yeah. want to. So we talked about My Bloody Valentine, which was awesome. Uh, but, um, you know, another another connection there. Uh, but I, I'm, I will say I'm very glad that I became acquainted with the, um, the last two Talk Talk albums before reading your book. Because um, I didn't understand, I, I knew about the painstaking process of making those albums, but I didn't understand the toll it took on you and pretty much everybody involved. And- Definitely, yeah, it was it was really more laughing stuff. I mean, Spirit of Eden was, was kind of a it was a fun album to make. If, you know, if if it in, if in that environment and spending that amount of time can necessarily be kind of fun, but it was uh, there was a good atmosphere, a lot of humor. Um, Laughing Stock was a different kettle of fish for me. I mean, it's a really dark album to make. Um, there were casualties at the end of the album with, you know, assistants who left the business on the drummer who kind of had a bit of a breakdown and Tim who got divorced. You know, there was a lot of carnage. Um, but I, again, I've always kind of been willing to talk about the talk talk stuff rather partly to clarify some of the mysticism that's built up over over it. Because, I mean, okay, we were working in the dark with a strobe and an oil projector and things, but <clears throat> um, there's a lot of stuff also written that, that 
taking things slightly out of context, you know. So I, I've always been happy to kind of talk about those sessions. And and Tim was through the 90s, but then there just came a point where to mention Talk Talk was a really bad move for whoever <laughs> was interviewing him. And he makes it very clear that he won't talk yeah. about Talk Talk or have anything to do with it. I'm not quite sure why, um, because Talk Talk kind of made him a millionaire and also... I know he's done other things the same as I have, but Tim and I will always be known for Spirit of Eden, probably. But Love Is Not was a tricky album to make. Um, Mark's acoustic album, the solo album, was actually very nice to make in the end when I finally did uh, <laughs> get involved and do it. Um, and it still took six months or something, but it was daylight, it was... You know, he had it all scored out. He knew exactly what he was after, which is very different to the first two albums I'd, I'd done. Um, so it ended up being a really pleasant experience. But, you know, originally when I said no, it's just having gone through Lovestock and Spirit, I just didn't, I, it was like we'd all, everyone was walking away, you know, Paul and Lee had left. And then Tim and Mark kind of stopped working to get, you know, so when I got asked in 97 or whatever to do it, it was just like, do I really want to go back into that mad world? And I didn't. Um, as it turned out, it wasn't that mad world. And it was still involved, still crazy, still typically Mark. But it wasn't laughing stock, you know. But that's what I feared, which is why I said no originally. Well, it was a relief to me to read that chapter on, on Mark's album and to hear that that went so much better because after reading about how uh, Laughing Stock was, was made and how that affected everybody, uh, it's honestly, it's going to be, I'm going to hear a lot of those songs differently now, uh, I would say, especially New Grass, which is something mm -hmm. I've just always enjoyed and it's such a track to get blissed out to. And Yeah, it's, um, it, you see, I, I couldn't listen to New Grass for over 10 years, probably 15 years, as soon yeah. as anyone was playing Lifestyle, I would tend to leave and get get out of the way. I did listen to After the Flood, which I always just thought was one of the most amazing, oh, um, God, yeah. claustrophobic and damp things I'd ever kind of worked on. I did, I did play that because it's a good reference for bass end in studios and all kinds of things. But I never played New Grass because it it took us ten days to mix this thing, and I was I couldn't hear anything at the at the end, and uh, it was really disturbing. And I was scared. I mean, it sounds crazy now, but I was scared of putting on New Grass because I did not want to go back into the headspace I was in when we were trying to finish that record, you know. And then, probably about ten years ago, eight years ago, I was in a, an environment and somebody. Um, was playing, I think they were playing the whole album, but I came in just before New Grass and went, and it was awkward to kind of leave. And I just stayed there and went, wow, this track's amazing. This is beautiful. So having not listened to it because I was scared, I ended up putting this on and going, what the hell did I, What? where was I when I was hearing this in a completely different way? Yeah. And something I didn't want to listen to again. You know, and you listen to it and go, wow, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful and so positive. But, um, yeah, it's, it's when you spend, you know, 
nearly a year doing six songs in a dark room, you know, with very little com communication, things happen. You know what I mean? It, it, I don't think um, any of us were ever the same again after doing Spirit of Eden because it, um, once you start working that way, normality just seems a waste of time, you know. So, you know, I'd spent all those years, I'd been in the business over 20 years when I did uh, Spirit of Eden, uh, and almost you were like throwing out all the stuff you've ever done or learned uh, and devising a completely new way of working, a new kind of sound approach and everything. Um, it's very hard to finish that and then kind of go, okay, well, I'll just go back to what I was doing. You know what I mean? I sure. N never approached music the same way again after Spirit of Eden. Um, but to me, that was a positive thing. Uh, laughing stock, I don't think I will ever really see the positive side of that. I find it amusing when people have their top talk talk albums and laughing stock is at the top. You know, I always find that amusing because it's just like, wow, really? Because I find it really difficult to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Understandably so. Understandably so. Like I say, it, uh, knowing that, knowing that uh, what was involved definitely changes the the way I hear it now. Well, I know uh, Lee Harris, when he finished, when he was being interviewed, because he doesn't, you know, he was one of the ones also walked away from it, but he was being interviewed probably now about 20 years ago. It was the end of the 90s, I think. And somebody said, so what was it like making Laughing Stock? He said it was like World War Three. That was his simple answer to it. So, you know, you take what you will from that. But I wasn't the uh, – Tim's always tried to kind of give the impression that I was the only one that really had a hard time making the record. You know, he said that in a couple of interviews. But huh. it was tough. It really was. And everyone was going through one thing or another. It was uh, – yeah, I'm not sure we should have even been in the studio doing it at that particular point in time. But, you know, for those that love the album – Brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's too, you know, like Tim and I, when we finished the album, Tim turned around and he said, well, there's nowhere to go from here. You know, we, we, there, there will be no more talk to that because where do you go from here? You know, we've stripped it down because we recorded so much stuff and erased so much stuff. You know, I mean, we probably erased 90% of what we recorded. So what you get left on, apart from after the flood, but what's left is this skeleton almost of a, of a record, you know, and Tim was like, well, there's nowhere to go after this. And yet Mark did, uh, did have one more album. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> after the kind of five year break, he came back with something completely different again, but yes, he did have yeah. something. And even quieter <laughs> somehow. <laughs> it was quieter. Yes. It was uh, incredibly quiet. That record, um, the level of playing and, and everything was just incredibly quiet. I mean, and Mark on that one got into that thing where, which he'd already been experimenting with, I, I think on Laughing Stock anyway, but where he's singing as quiet as he can, just as long as the voice will actually work, if you know, you know, enough volume to get a sound, but singing as quiet as he possibly could. Um, and that, that kind of peaks on, on his solo album. Left no left no more. Well, Phil, I appreciate the uh, additional insight on uh, some some albums that uh, I I love and a lot of people love, and uh, and again uh, appreciate the insight on this uh, fantastic 
Murray Head album as well. So uh, before we wrap things up, is there? I know you just said that you've you've certainly you've cut back on the the work that you do, but is there anything uh, coming up for you, or uh, or is that to be determined? No, I, well, I mean, I, I I'm actually recovering from a prostate operation, so I had to cancel some work I was doing with um, Starlight Campbell Blues uh, Band, which I was going to mix. But um, I've worked a lot with this um, woman called Chantal Acta, who, who lives in Belgium, and I've probably made about four albums with her. So in September, I'm out to um, Studio Sono in Prague, or just outside Prague, to uh, to make another album with her. Um, up until then, I have no plans at all at this point in time, but who knows what might come along. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, obviously taking care of yourself is always the, the, the yeah. main thing. Uh, so, but, uh, can certainly look forward to, um, uh, to, to her albums. Uh, is there a place where we can keep track, Phil, of, um, whatever it is that you have going on? I, I was not able to find anything on the social media platforms. I did find, uh, the website for your book, tapedemon.net. Uh, but anywhere else that we should uh, be yes. um In fact, there, there is a new uh, website now because tape, tape, uh, tape Demon. Oh, yeah, tapedemon.net. That's right. That is the website. Yeah, up there I kind of update who I've been working with. Um, so there's a kind of full list of, of things there. But it's it's not a – I'm not highly active with with a lot of the social media stuff. Um, you know, I, I Facebook, I might put up the, the odd post if I'm doing something. But um, – the tape demon site is the only site I have uh, where people can, you know, track down an email address if they want to send me something or, you know, see what I'm up to. Okay. Terrific. Well, that will be in the notes uh, for sure. And uh, just quickly here, let you know where you can uh, keep track of me and keep track of the show. Uh, I am on Twitter at Al Melchior BB. And then the show has accounts on Twitter and on Instagram. Same handle, both places at you, me album. And um, if you aren't following those accounts, but you actually would like to know who's going to be on the show, uh, maybe a few days in advance, those are the accounts where I let you know who's coming on, what album we're going to discuss. So that's at Yumi Album on both Twitter and Instagram. And then there's also the newsletter, yumialbum.substack.com. So Phil Brown, this has been just an absolute pleasure for me. So much fun. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And I wish you the best in, in everything. Well, thanks very much, Al. Thank you for asking me. Uh, yeah, no, this has been completely my pleasure. And I hope you all have enjoyed this uh, as well, too. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'll be back again in another week with another guest, another album. And since we talked about Hell by Trees a little bit, I'll send you off with a, a little preview of uh, uh, one of their new EPs uh, coming up. So until then, everybody, until the next time, please do take care and listen to some great music. 